All right. So we appreciate you coming today. We're missing a couple of people because they don't feel good. So we'll pray for them this morning as we start and um, pray for Chad being on the road. Um, I just thank all of you for coming to spend time with us this morning. We love doing this study um, and we love having you here. So Father God, we just thank you for who you are. And we, I thank you for my lovely daughter being able to um, worship you through music and I thank you for the talent that you've given her and just ask that you would continue to grow that in her, that she carries on her life, uh, loving you through her music. And we just ask that you bless those from our church family who are traveling or not feeling well today, um, that you would care for them and touch their hearts while they're on the road or at home. Thank you for those who have shown up to do this uh, worship in this lesson with us and ask that it would be uh, very fruitful, Lord. So we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for your son, Jesus, whom we don't deserve, and we ask in his holy name. Amen. So this is pretty cool. So Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, kind of ends a, a section, if you will. <clears throat> and this part of Ephesians is one of the most theologically rich and most debated parts of the Bible, of the entire Bible. And it's pretty awesome. We'll get into that for a minute. This essentially helps concrete the foundation of how the Reformation works. Like, why did those guys get mad at the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church for the way things were going? And these three verses are going to show us what they leaned on for their theology. And then it also brings up kind of a big debate. And we'll talk about that as well. But... You know, a couple of weeks ago, <clears throat> we brought up that perspective and what the Reformed folks started to come up with, um, you know, starting from early Reformers in the 1400s through the true Reformers in the 1500s, 1600s, and how grace works in our life. Like, how does God's grace imparted to us work for our salvation? What part do we play in it? And Paul's going to lay it out here. And this is why it becomes such a big part of the Reformers. And we talked about the five solas, if you guys remember that or if you listen to it. So the five solas, I'll go over them again. But these didn't get organized as the five solas until like the 1960s, but they all essentially exist in Reformation theology. It just took some time for somebody to go, hey, we should all stick those on one piece of paper because it makes sense. But they are this, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, solas Christus, and soli deo gloria. So the five solas in Latin are this, scripture alone. So we believe scripture is the authority. Not that men who wrote books and, and tradition are unimportant, but where we go for the truth is the Bible. And the Bible has the authority over everything. No prophet can come and say, hey, that doesn't matter anymore. I'm going to add to it. It's just scripture. It's scripture and scripture alone. And then we have faith alone, grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And that is essentially how we're saved. We are saved through faith, by His grace. That faith is in Jesus Christ, and it's for the glory of God. So that's the five solas. So Paul's going to bring them all together, 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 really, kind of poetically here. So if you will, look at Ephesians 2, and look at verse 8, and we're going to read through verse 10. Paul says this, it says, For grace you have been saved through faith, and this 
is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And if I was going to take this section and say, what would you call it? For me, it would be, we're God's handiwork. We're God's workmanship. And we're going to learn how that happens as we go through this, but it's really important. So we've been saved by grace through faith, establishes what saves us. Pretty seems pretty easy, right? The second part shows us that there's no work that can be done. And this is important. <laughs> Excuse me. It's not of yourselves, no person, no work, no act, no prayer, no amount of money, no spiritual gifts. You can't speak in tongues or heal or you can't prophesy to save yourself. You, there's nothing that you can do. And this is important because having grown up in the Catholic tradition and studying the Catholic tradition, they have a pretty bad history of trying to make people pay alms or go through certain catechisms or do certain things and saying that they are intrinsically tied to your salvation. And it's just not true. There's nothing that supports that here in the word of God. Jesus saves you. Jesus is the only one who saves you. You can't save you. Nobody else can save you. Actually, nobody else can tell you that you're saved either. It's just Jesus. So we, we rest in that when our faith is in him. It's him that saves, which is pretty good, right? It's pretty good because I don't know about you guys, but I am horrible at almost everything, especially when it comes to my faith. I fail every single day. I feel my failure I've become more aware of my failure the older I get. When I was younger, I wasn't aware of my failure at all. I was pretty sure everything was hunky-dory, kosher. I was cool. I was killing life. And then I believe as the Holy Spirit convicted me more, I was like, man, I'm pretty much trash at everything I do when it comes to my faith. I felt behind the power curve. So I go through this wave of like, I'm doing great. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm doing horrible. Well, how do I get to that point where I'm doing great again? Well, I don't. There you go. Now I can rest in that because now I know that who picks up the slack is Christ. And that's really important to understand. Now, it doesn't give us license to be sinful. We went over that when we talked about Romans um, during the baptism. And then we talked about it the other night at dinner where it doesn't mean we just go about being sinful. We do work. We do good works, but those don't save us. So it's just an important distinction to make. <clears throat> But to make it clear here, Paul is going to tell us that this it is the gift of God. So if you look at this, and it says, For grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. So this is where this kind of debate comes in, right? Um, and it's going to land us in the middle of <coughs> a, a big theological debate. What is it? Is it grace that is the gift of God or is it faith that is the gift of God? And if you kind of let that sit for a second, that's a really important distinction because we already know grace is the gift of God. But what if faith is the gift of God? What if you were unable to respond to the gospel in any way, shape or form? It's actually God who initiates that faith in your life. And this is a huge debate. Because we have essentially the Calvin debate versus the Arminian debate. And then you've got some people that fall in between, like the provisionalists or provisionism. And essentially the sides are this. The 
Calvinists from John Calvin, the great reformer, would say, you cannot make faith on your own, that it's God who must initiate because then faith becomes a work. And then our Arminians would say, you're total free will, so you can believe on your own, but you can't save yourself. And then provisionalism would essentially fall somewhere in the middle where they would say, you can respond to the gospel knowing that you are sinful. You develop a faith, but it's still God who saves you. So it falls out somewhere in the middle. But grace and faith, and here's the interesting thing, is if you look at it in Greek, and this is where being able to read or understand a little bit of Greek makes it really important to understand the distinction between the two because kind of your average person that would take a side may have not studied it, and then they're going to stand on something and say, well, it means faith or it means grace. Well, you have to understand Greek or you don't know what, you don't know what it means. So just to give you kind of a snapshot of what it means, grace and faith in Greek are both in the feminine form. Now, we've talked about this a little bit. Words in Greek have their masculine or feminine or neuter, typically. They have, um, they correlate to each other in very specific ways. And because grace and faith are both feminine and they make up the first clause or the first part of the speech, the word gift in the subclause is in the neuter form. So if it's in the neuter form, then it doesn't relate to grace and faith. And when attempting to relate this noun to the other parts of speech, in what in speech we would call it the antecedent or what happens before, we would look for a genitive part of speech that matches neuter, and we don't. So we don't find one that matches it. And since we don't, we have to assume that when Paul says that it is a gift, that it relates to the entire part of speech. So think about this for a second. You can tell me what word you think of. If you just take for grace, you have been saved through faith. And I just said that, what word comes to mind? Salvation. He's essentially saying, this is how you are saved. That's what it is. This is the gift. The gift is salvation. So it makes it really, really interesting to look at that. Um, So what I kind of mean by this is grace through faith is the gift that Paul's referring to. And it kind of sets aside the idea that you can separate them out from one another. And really it all works together, right? We know that a seed must be planted. That's that's the gospel. That's the euangelion. That's the word of God. That's somebody in your circle told you there's a better way. Somebody in your circle shared Christ with you. You walked into a church for absolutely no reason. I mean, the hundred reasons you at some point had a self-realization like I did, and you're like, wow, I'm a horrible human. There must be more than this. And for whatever reason, you were touched. Now, the interesting part is, no matter what, you can't also get around the fact that it is God who initiates 100% as well, because the gospel is his. It comes from him. So without this good work that he did and then good word that he put down we can't have faith anyway it all begins and ends with him so it's christ who initiates through the good news and that's how it's revealed to two people right and then once it's realized and you've been stirred by the holy spirit to faith 
then saving grace is imparted to you. And they work together to explain that faith and grace are inseparable. You have to have both together. Verse 9 is really going to drive this point home. It says, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Right? Um, you, as we, I spoke about earlier, you can't do anything to receive God's grace. But Paul tells us also in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So when we talk about when we are saved and people ask you, what did you do to be saved? Or, you know, what did you change in your life? What things did you do to become who you are now? The answer is, I did nothing. God did it. I had this kind of time in my life. It hasn't happened as much lately, but like 10 years ago when I was working where we work now, I had this like stream of dudes whose marriages were on the verge of just destruction. And for some reason, it's a Holy Spirit thing. I know now, but it, back then I didn't see it. But guys were just coming into the office like, how are you still married? Because everything in my life has fallen apart. And one by one, it was like, dude, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. Because if it was me, we'd have been divorced a long time ago. Because I was screwing it up by the numbers. Like if somebody wrote a book on how to screw up your marriage, like, actually I should have written the book on how to screw up your marriage. It was Christ being made a part of our marriage that made me understand the things that you do as a result of your relationship with Christ, like service and sacrifice and love and all of those things. I mean, those are, th I'm, I'm not saying you can't do those things without Christ, but let's be honest with ourselves. There are days when you hate your spouse's guts more than you've ever hated anything in your entire life. And that fiery volcano of hate wants to just blow out of the top of your head and ruin everything. That's the flesh working its way out. The part of us that brings us back to center isn't that I do good things for you. The thing that brings us back to center is I love Christ and he laid his life down for me. Therefore, I will lay my life down for my spouse in a sacrificial way. That's what love looks like. And that's why that works. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 9.23, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. Psalm 32 two says, My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. It's really important to understand that this is giving glory to God. We're starting now to build the case of who we boast for. And as we spoke about earlier in the five solas, right? We have this sola deo gloria. This is where we're beginning to boast in the God. We are giving him the glory for everything that happened in our lives from our salvation all the way through all the blessings that we have. But it brings up another theological dilemma. Okay? That theological dilemma of works in the Bible, we're clearly called to do good works. So if you look in the book of James, if you've ever read the book of James... Um, he tells us faith without works is dead. Now, there are some cults and religions who lean on that pretty hard because they're going to tell you, if you're not doing good works, you're, you don't have any faith and you're not saved. So we're going to do good works. Well, 
that it's a perspective issue. You need to move around that idea of what good works is because we do good works as a result of our salvation and you should be doing them. And it is fruit. We see fruit in people of doing good works because they're saved, not for their salvation. You can't do it, as Paul mentioned earlier, not by your own works. So it's leaned on to leverage a salvation through works type theology. And what comes from an improper view of works is a theology concept called synergism. And synergy, like the word synergy, it essentially means to work together, is people will say that your salvation is attained through a synergistic relationship between your faith and your works. The other side of that is something called monergism or mono, right? So it's one. So that work is done by Christ alone. So synergism and monergism. Monergism is definitely more consistent with the Bible. And what it tells us is that God's work alone that saves us. And throughout the Bible, it's clear, and especially in this verse. And if we have the ability to work as part of our faith, we could somehow boast in it, is what he's saying, right? So if I gave more money to the church, I could boast in that. If I fed more hungry people, I could boast in that. If I put more clothes on naked kids, I could boast in that. So at the end of the day, when we stand in front of the judgment seat and God looks at us and is like, which one of you is saved? The one who did all the good stuff? That's, then you're essentially pulling Christ out of the, the equation, right? What you're saying is Christ died and that was all good, but oh yeah, you need to do all these. And what he's saying is you can't, you can't lean on all those good things to get you in. It's really important to say that because it's not only a part of what happens in the cults, it's a part of what happens in our lives when we feel pretty horrible about how things are going. Or these times where we get trapped, and some churches do it, where it's like missions, missions, missions. You need to go do stuff. You need to go do stuff. You need to go do stuff. And sometimes it's like, press the reset button. You cannot earn it. All of that good stuff is pouring out of your faith, of your love for him. You do it because you want to. And you, sometimes you don't do it at all. Because for whatever season you've got going on in your life, you're just not, for some reason, pouring into something specific. Maybe that good work is just loving your wife or loving your husband or loving your kids. Maybe that good work is just being nicer to people around you. Maybe that good work is just that homeless person gets a sandwich. I don't know what it is, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you are doing some big mission trip planning event that's overwhelming your existence. He's just saying you're a good person because as a result of your faith, because it can't get you into heaven. We find that this grace through faith in Christ alone, by looking back at verse 7, right, where we see that God shows the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Jesus. <clears throat> so here we see this solus Christus. This is where we're going to get this part of it. So in Christ alone is where salvation is found. God does not show the riches of his grace towards those who do good works. But he also doesn't show them towards Buddhists, Muslims, nice people, people who are benevolent, lived amazing lives of mercy towards one another. He shows his grace towards those who are in Christ, period. I know this is a rough one for people to hear because people love that universalist message of like, there's many ways to God. It's not just Jesus was a great prophet. There's all kinds of stuff that he did that was nice, but I don't necessarily have to be in him. 
Um, but what about good Muslims? What about good Buddhists? What if I'm just a good person? Sorry. No. The Bible is clear. It's the word of God. God is God. God created all. He made the rules. You have to be in Christ to see him pour out the riches of his mercy. That's it. That's the only way to heaven. Uh, and it's important distinction as Christians. And I think the church has gotten really bad at people who are like, but I'm a good person. Love you for it. I love you for it. You need Jesus. You need Jesus just like I need Jesus. Look, if it was just about being a good person, why would we do this? It doesn't make any sense to just be a good person. We worship him because he created it all. Because he's all powerful. He's holy. He's glorious. It's a response to him being a king. It's a political debate. He's in charge. He wins. And we can either subject ourselves to that amazing, glorious, beautiful end that he has built for us, or we can decide not to. But he gets to win. There's no other way. It's not a universal religion. The Bible is clear. For those who call Jesus a good prophet or whatever, he cleared the air for us. He cleared the air for us here in John 14, 16. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. No one. No other religions, no other thoughts, nothing. It's very important. It's important to tell your friends this, who you feel they've got it right, or they're doing good, or the people you work with, because they need to make the distinction. Because people ask me all the, all the time, I mean, I get this question regularly, like, but what about? I'm sorry, they're not getting into heaven. How can you say that? Like, I got this, this says it. Don't, you know, don't hate me. This says it right here. So let's make the distinction. Christ was clear. So soli deo gloria. We're going to move on. For the glory of God. So everything that we do is for his glory. Jesus coming and spending that time on the cross, accepting his wrath and paying the price for our sins was for his glory. All the work we do is for his glory. The worship we do for his glory. We sit here and learn from the text for his glory. It's all for him because he is God. And we see it in light of him being the merciful one who has the ability to raise up Christ from the dead and raise up us in him. And he's the one who shows us the riches of his grace. It's God the Lord whom we boast in. As we looked at 1 Corinthians 1. Romans 3 tells us he's the righteous one who demonstrates his righteousness through Jesus Christ as Christ came and lived a perfect life. But we really see a great picture of that in verse 10. As we finish up this section in that last verse today, if you go to verse 10 with me, it says, for we are his workmanship, really important word, stick your finger there, workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is really cool, workmanship. The word that Paul uses here is the Greek word poema, poema. It's where we get the word poem, poema. It simply means to make. There's nothing special about the word. It's not intrinsically unique. It's just a Greek word to work, handiwork or workmanship. But it gives us a glimpse into his plan, his power, his glory, his holiness, right? Because that word poem, if you ever looked at the way that people have communicated since the beginning of time, Poetry is considered the highest form of communication and the highest form of literature that we have. 
by all scholars. I mean, we've, we've learned to scrape into walls and we've learned to sign language and we've learned to grunt. And most of us can at least get out a whole sentence and know where the periods and the exclamation points go, the question marks. Poetry is the highest form. If you think about it, every poem has a rhythm or a rhyme or a certain number of words or a certain number of lines, like haikus are built a certain way or, or different types of poems are set up to rhyme in different sorts of ways. And there's, if you ever took a literature class in school, you'll know there's hundreds, there's possibly thousands throughout history of ways that poems, even the Old Testament, if you look at like the Psalms, which are songs that are sung, they're poetic in nature. Proverbs is poetic. They're built in certain ways so that if you look at them in Hebrew, they have either a certain number of words or they start with certain verses or they have rhymes and pauses and they're all built very well. And you're talking about something that was written, you know, thousands of years ago. And it's amazing that people communicated that way. Just for a second, think he uses, he uses the word poema where we get poem, which is the highest form of communication to describe us the highest form of communication to describe us we do not only see how amazing god is through creation we see it all around us it's his handiwork it's his poem it's built perfectly it's created in the highest form nothing else matches it limits it nothing else could have created it he's the only one who could have communicated it the way that he did it's the highest form. We see how amazing God is through creation of mankind, and then we see it amplified again in us as believers, because we are that handiwork. We are that craftsmanship, that workmanship. Here we see His glory, we see His power, we see His divine nature, and there's no excuse for not seeing God in creation. There's just no excuse. It's such an amazing thing for people to ask, like, oh, how can you prove God? And I just love the answer. Like, go walk outside and look. What made it? What made it? God made it. Look, look how perfect it is. There is a, um, if you can find it, and it's on one of the interweb access points, take a note of it. It's called the Privileged Planet. The Privileged Planet. It is one of the most amazing documentaries about Earth and how it is so perfect. I mean, if we were a degree off in the lean of the poles, everything would be different. We are the only planet known to scientists that exists in a certain place in the universe that we can see everything. We don't have the disruption of rings or moons or space debris. We can look out from Earth and see the entire universe to, to our limits of our own technology. We're the only one. When they look at the way everything else is set up, there's some disruption somewhere else that would not allow. We are in the perfect place to be able to witness the rest of God's creation outside of our own heavens, and nothing else is. There's no way we grew up out of primordial soup. That is one of the most moronic, satanic lies ever created in the history of humankind. Anybody who grows up in the biology sciences and looks at you and says, this could have come from evolution is just a liar. And they hate God. So 
I love the debate. I love to have that debate with people, but really what it is, is it's evil. There's no way we're perfect. Think about the things that we do on a daily basis and how that computer inside your skull is able to take in and reason and develop answers for things all the time. Every breath, every step, every heartbeat, every movement of the eye, that eye that adjusts itself thousands and thousands of times over the course of the room has depth perception. It, it is amazing. God made it. We, able, we are able to see that in this. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 1.20. He says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So they are without excuse. <coughs> There's no excuse for not believing in God. We see here his glory, his power, his divine nature. There's no excuse. In Psalm 19.1, King David records this. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. We're so much more than just a creation though, right? We're so much more than just his handiwork. He's built us for so much more in him than just look what I made. It's look what I made and look the way it relates to each other, it relates to my savior, it relates to me, how it takes care of its environment. We are so much more special than that. <clears throat> Those of us who are in Christ were created to do good works, right? Good works that God had as part of his eternal plan for us to walk in. When Paul says that we walk in these good works, he really means that we conduct our lives deeply, soulfully, existentially understand that we've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone for the glory of our amazing creator, the Lord. And that's why we've been created. So I got to be honest with you, when I started studying this, and I've studied this before, but as I re-looked at it and I looked at the language and I started to think what's important to talk about this week, like my mind just started going through all this crazy stuff and I just couldn't help but think about that God built this picture of him in us when it comes to parenthood. So everybody in here is a parent. So <clears throat> I want to read you this because I just sat and I like st just kind of let the keyboard go as I was thinking about what it looks like to be a parent and how it relates to God. So bear with me and listen if you will. It'll just take a moment and I'll read this to you. Ezra's excited to hear it. <clears throat> it says, just a tiny picture of the intimacy and care that our God puts into us is in the picture of parents. A mother has a child grow in her womb for about 280 days or 40 weeks. That child grows and develops completely dependent on her. Then when it's birth, the child will strengthen while pressed to her breast. It will open its eyes in the presence of its mother and utter its first words. As it grows, its father will develop a protective teaching type of love that demands the responsibility of provision and gentle yet firm care. In their midst, this child has become the most valuable part of their relationship. It is built of their work, love, care, and takes on their image. The child has no intrinsic value. 
as skin and bone. But the work and love poured into their body, mind, and spirit make it invaluable. I'm convinced that as we, mankind, are made in the image of God, or the Imago Dei, it's much like this with God our Father. It is out of His work that we were created. It is His Holy Spirit that develops our heart, spirit, and mind. It's on Him (coughs) that we depend on for our protection and to be taught. It is His provision, but firm, gentle care that sustains us. It is in His work, love, and care that we take on His image. As skin and bone, we have no intrinsic value. But the work and love poured into our body, mind, and spirit make us invaluable in Christ Jesus through His sacrifice. See, we are His workmanship. We are His poema. We are built for a very specific reason at a very specific time for a very specific work for Him in Him. Father, thank you for who you are, and I thank you for this uh, amazing book that we're going through, and we can get so many deep, rich truths from. And again, Lord, I just thank you for this group and for time spent with them and uh, all the blessings we can pour out on one another. And we love you, Lord. We love you for your creation. We want to care for it the best that we can. We ask that you just make us keenly aware that it is you who are in control, even when it looks like the world is off by a couple of degrees and everything has gone crazy, God. We realize that you are the creator, that you are the masterful one. And it is through your son Jesus that we are saved. Our faith, his grace, through him, for your glory, God. We ask all of our blessings in this holy name.